Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Bo this morning in the third year of the triennial cycle, which puts us, therefore, at the last third of this Parsha, which puts us at chapter 12, verse 29. Last week we studied together the plagues that were the second three, right? We talked about how there are three sets of three, and then the coup de gras. So we are coming now uh, to that tenth plague. So we've come through three sets of three, and remember that this took over a year, right? So we tend to sit around the table and we read it like this, um, but we're talking about in, in Torah's narrative, in our tradition's memory of, of this, it is a long sequence that takes about a year before we arrive at this place uh, as Pharaoh has continued to resist doing the will of yud heh uh, we come now to what that brings upon his people. So someone want to begin at 1229. In the middle of the night, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the cattle. And Pharaoh rose in the night with all his courtiers and all the Egyptians because there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was no house where there was not someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Up, depart from among my people, you and the Israelites with you. Go, worship the Lord as you said. Take also your flocks and your herds as you said, and be gone. And may you bring a blessing upon me also. Okay, go on. The Egyptians urged the people on, impatient to have them leave the country, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowl, bowls wrapped in their cloaks upon their shoulders. The Israels had done Moses' bidding and borrowed from the Egyptians objects of silver and gold and clothing, and the Lord had disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people, and they let them have their request. Thus they stripped the Egyptians. So we, we come to this incredibly dramatic scene as we can imagine, there's been renderings of it in film, of course. Um, but if you imagine, right, the absolute terror and devastation of this night, uh, notice it is night, right? We get this this plague at night. So we come out of the plague of darkness, right? Choshech, that is palpable, says the tradition. The Midrash says that the, the it's not just choshech, it's not just an absence of light, it's a palpable darkness. <clears throat> and we come out of that, and then the next time it's dark, right? I mean, then, then again, in the dark, this plague strikes Egypt, the, the death of the firstborn. This is going to be tied, of course, to the sanctification within Israelite culture of the firstborn, of everything. Peterechem is the term from the tradition. Everything that causes the womb to open, meaning for the first time, becomes sanctified and directly related in our tradition to this to this narrative. 
<coughs> Hadn't Pharaoh also said that the firstborn of the uh, <coughs> Israelite was going to be drowned? All males. Beginning, yeah. Oh, all. all males. All right. So the the Egyptians, of course, are eager now to have this these people out. Right? They they now are afraid that that it's not going to stop with the death of the firstborn, but that the death is going to continue with the presence of the Israelites, and so they throw them out, which is one of the explanations, of course, we get for matzah, which is that it's it hasn't had time to rise, and because they're in a hurry, the bread of haste, right? We often hear matzah described as. And the Egyptians gave them stuff, which our text tells us they borrowed. <laughs> so it's a little like borrowing a Kleenex. Uh, <laughs> right. And explains something about, for later in our uh, narrative, explains something about how they had things with which to build the Mishkan. Right? So everybody always says, wait a minute, they, they just were slaves. They left Egypt. How did they have anything with which to build the Mishkan when it says bring your gold and your silver or to, to build the golden calf? Right? Here's the reference back that they borrowed it from the Egyptians. So, you know, we might take another term for this and call it reparations. <laughs> right? We know from this term, don't we? Right? Germany still gives a bunch of cars to Israel. It's reparations, right? For the suffering and the oppression and the torture and the death and all of that 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 a people has wrought on another people. Um, so here's restitution, uh, material restitution anyway. Can I, can I jump in? On uh, line 30, and Pharaoh arose in the night, that always amazes me that um, Moses has been nine for nine. Now he's been told the firstborn are going to die. And really, he goes to sleep. I mean, you would think he'd have been up pacing. He's the first one, presumably, to be in that position of Pharaoh. He has children. He has friends. He is, he's sleeping. I just always, you know. So what does it suggest? I, I, I can't even imagine that he was going, this isn't going to happen again. You know, like, this time. But if he really thought it was going to happen... I wouldn't be asleep. Wouldn't you have let the people go? Right. Right. <laughs> right? Presumably, he's that arrogant. I mean, that, you know, that's the tradition's explanation. Is He's so arrogant. He's so ego-centered. He's so full of his own belief and his own immunity, you know, or his own power, that he doesn't even relent after the ninth plague. Because if he really believed it was coming, you'd think he would say, okay, forget this, go. Just go. But he doesn't. Not only doesn't he do that, he sleeps. How, right, how arrogant is Pharaoh? He sleeps. On the night, right, of the flame of the firstborn. Reuben? Uh, Is there any significance to that uh, he says, may you bring a blessing upon me also? Yeah, that's a very very interesting line of Torah, right? What do you think it means, Reuben? Uh, gosh, you could write a novel. (laughs) 
You have been into our study long enough to have that answer. I love that. You could write a novel on that one line, right? What is Pharaoh saying there? It's bizarre. Well, it looks like he's acknowledging that the God of the Hebrews has some power. So, the, if the God of the Hebrews has some power, then Moses, as the representative of that God, must have some kind of power to enact bracha. Okay? It's also, I mean, Pharaoh was, at the time, he was king. Yes. He was the Almighty. I mean, everybody really worshipped Pharaoh. And so now when he summons Moses and Aaron, he's saying, hey, and, you know, bring a blessing upon me too. He's saying, you know what, I'm recognizing there's a higher power than myself. Okay, so maybe Pharaoh's starting to get it. Like Bert said, that, you know, that, that this Yudhe business has some heft. Maybe he's just covering his bases. <laughs> maybe he's just covering his bases. But he's not saying, he's being quite rude when he's saying to Moses, hey, take your flight, get out, and also give me a blessing. You know what I'm saying? Really both? So this is the first time that we see Pharaoh use the term B'nai Yisrael. So something shifted for Pharaoh, right? He's, he recognizes this as a people, B'nai Israel, the descendants of Israel. And clearly he has some kind of shift in understanding about the efficacy of this yud heh business in the world and is not wanting anything to do with the nine other things that have happened. <laughs> the opposite of that seems to be bracha. Because in the ancient world, what is the what is the opposite of blessing? Curse. And what is curse effect? A curse isn't isn't anything if it's just words. What is a curse effect? What happens? Suffering, death, disease, war, right? All of the horrors we can imagine is what people use as execrations. So the opposite of an execration of a curse is a bracha. It seems that Pharaoh understands that there has been unleashed a klala, a curse, that manifests. He's seen it nine times. And so he wants the opposite of that now. Just in case. Just in case. So it's a, it's a very interesting thing that Pam brings up, that he slept, so it doesn't seem he even believes the tenth plague or something worse than the nine that have happened is coming. Does that mean he doesn't believe in Yudhei Vafe? It doesn't, or that Yudhei Vafe has any power? It doesn't seem so because he says, please unleash a bracha my way instead of a klala, a curse. I saw a hand. Barbara? Well, I was just thinking about climate change and I'm thinking about. Of course. the Israelites were the slaves that the financial culture of Egypt was based on, and oil and fossil fuel is the is what our our economy is based on. So, being saying it's not true, it's not true, it's not true. Mm-hmm. No, it's not true. I'm not even gonna, mm-hmm. I'm not looking at it. It's not true. It seems similar. <laughs> so it's not true. It's not true. It's not true. It's not true. But I'm gonna make sure that I recycle all of this. Mm-hmm. Right? There's this way that, right? Like, 
it's not true, it's not going to happen, but could just send a blessing my way. There is this, there, there seems to be this human capacity for cognitive dissonance on the one hand, right? Two, two things being true at the same time that seem completely oppositional or, or dissonant. And we have a really amazing capacity for denial. Even as we know something is terribly, terribly wrong and possible and that we're participating in perpetuating it, we have this remarkable ability to go to sleep. And, oh, when we wake up in the night, what do you mean there's a flood, right? Well, because the polar ice caps melted, right? You Really, you're shocked when you wake up and there's a disaster that that's been coming for how long that you've been warned about, that you've been told about, that you even, in your heart of heart, believe? This is very human. And the most destructive part, in some ways, of being human is having power and continuing to deny, right, in acting in that power. We are the most powerful country in the history of the world. The world, people. And we continue to behave in ways that are bringing disaster. This It seems this is... A terrible, terrible human proclivity. Yes. I read the Devar in the Jewish Journal, and he posited Rabbi Barclay uh, for me as a very hmm, that all of these plagues and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was to prove to the Hebrew people that there is one God. That in the course of the hundreds of years they had been in. Egypt, they had begun to assimilate, which is what people do, and were probably worshiping Egyptian gods. So this was for the benefit of the Hebrews to see the all-powerful one God. So Robert called it a campaign. Yes, exactly. Right? It's an ad campaign yeah. for the Israelites, 100%. Because yeah. what do they know from this yod heh vav business? Right? Um, and, I mean, even Moshe has to be converted. Right? God has to do a lot of talking and a lot of pyrotechnics at a bush for Moshe to buy in. Right? That's that's the leader. That's the prophet. The other thing is this sets up for the Israelites that they're not asked to believe this on faith. Because later it says, as you've seen with your own eyes. And the idea is you saw what happened, you experienced what happened. And therefore, and therefore, they remain loyal and steadfast and trusting in that force forever, to. right? They're supposed to, but they're human beings, <laughs> right? Because we know what happens not long after this. It doesn't take very long, right, for them to round on Moses and Aaron. Doesn't take very long. All right, let's go on to thirty-seven. The Israelites journeyed to Ramesses to, from Ramesses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. Moreover, a mixed multitude went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had taken out of Egypt, for it was not leavened since they had been driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The length of time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430th year, to the very day, all the ranks of the Lord departed from the land of Egypt. 
That was for the Lord, a night of vigil to bring them out of this land of Egypt. The same night is the Lord's one of vigil for all the children of Israel throughout the ages. All right. So the, they journey. This is the setting out. This 600,000 men number can't be right. Um, if it's 600,000 men, that leaves us with a total population of 2 million. So uh, probably here, LF is referring to something other than the later understanding thousand. LF might mean a clan. LF might mean a, uh, a military unit number. Later it means thousand. So, but whatever. This is our, it's our tradition. And we say 600,000, whatever. So what we know is, and this is one of Rabbi Rubin's favorite lines of Torah, Vigam Erev Rav Allah Itam. And a mixed, our Haggadah says, a mixed multitude, right? Rav, abundant, wide. That's how we get the term rabbi. Rav, abundant, hopefully in learning, right? And in intention. So, um, Erev Rav, a mixed bigness, went out with them also. Meaning, lots of folk who were not Israelite. Why do you think Rabbi Rubin loves this line of Torah so much? Inclusivity, even from the get-go, from leaving Egypt, we were not just Israelites. We were not one group. There's no purity, and I'm doing air quotes for those of you at home, right? There's, there's no, right? We, we just don't have that concept. Even at our narrative of formation, we understand that if you opted in, you are part of the people that experiences the exodus and is part of the rest of the book, right? That, and the next couple of books, right? That happened in the desert. So that we never have understood ourselves to be kind of some kind of genetic purity ever, even starting here with our oldest narratives about how we came to be as a people. And there's no concept of illegal era of wrong, <laughs> as we've later developed in our country. I don't get it. Illegal immigrants. Illegal. Oh, illegal immigrants. Got it. Got it. Right. Um, right. If you opt in, you're accepted. You're accepted. But going back to the numbers, if the numbers was something like six hundred thousand. Wouldn't that be counted just counting the men? Mm-hmm. That's what I said. Yeah. So the whole cohort could be triple that or more. Easily. Yeah, and children. Right. Well. So that's why it's untenable. Right. Two, two million people did not. Even this story wouldn't have been about two million people leaving Egypt. And goats. A- and goats. <laughs> right. Like, in other words, even, even in the telling, it, it, it's a, it, it's translated wrong to say 600,000 men. Because even the tellers of the story would not have, they wouldn't have understood a population of Egypt being two million plus all the Egyptians. It, right? That, that number just isn't ancient civilizations numbers. Um, which is why they're, which is why LFS thousand is, is challenged by a lot of translators. And we just kind of leave it because we're used to it now. All right. That's part of our, you know, we've read the Haggadah. When you have Maxwell House <laughs> and it says thousand, that is a really tricky thing to change. Right. There are many Jewish blessings for many things. And one of the more unusual ones is there is, in fact, a blessing for seeing 600,000 Jews together in one place. And it's, yeah. Lord God, help me. 
right. So they, so they, we we get to this interesting concept of a night of vigil, and who is the shomer? Who is the one doing the vigiling? For the Lord, it says. Ah. For yud ah, ha, ha. It is a night of vigil for yud heh vav heh. God, God's self, watches this night. That demands a certain response forever from us, says our sacred text. What is that that it demands from us? What's demanded? God had this night of vigil on our behalf. What is our response supposed to be forever? To remember that night. Now, zikaron, remembrance. Interesting. What does zikaron mean? What does it mean? Remember that. Remember so you don't forget. Okay. Not very Jewish. Celebrate. Ah, Sarah, talk to me. What is the connection? So remembrance isn't just a mental activity. You're correct. What is it? What? Go more into that. What? What is remembrance for us? Zikaron. Well, eating matzah. Eating matzah. Having a seder. Having a seder. Telling the story. Re-experiencing. Paula says. Re-experiencing, says Bert. Celebrating, you said earlier. This is Jewish remembering. We don't remember like, oh, the car keys are on the counter. That's not what we mean when we say zikaron. We mean reenactment in some kind of existential way to to experience to put ourselves in a place to taste and experience and tell and relive something that is zikaron and it's not just the exodus no betach which is of course where I'm going is everything is about zikaron two commandments for Shabbat shamor bezachor Keep, meaning observe, like do it. Vizachor, and remember Shabbat. It doesn't mean like, oh, right, today is Saturday. Right? That's not the kind of remember. Remembering for Jews means some kind of doing. Something, we have to do something in order, liskol, to remember. There is no, and I'm going to give you this text from uh, Rabbi Pamela Wax that I, uh, that I study from, you know, I, I study uh, through um, Institute for Jewish Spirituality each week, and her whole text is on this idea of this, we see zikaron over 200 times in Tanakh. And she says there is no Hebrew word for history. I was reading that Passover, Passover is a night where we taste our history. We eat history. On Pesach, we eat history. We pass it on to the next generation. We pass it on to the next generation as we tell it and as we enact it and celebrate it and eat it. That is how we have the next generation 
experience zikaron for this night. So, um, no word for history. Now, if you go to Israel, they'll say historia. Okay, clearly not a Hebrew word, right? It's like televisia. <laughs> Universita. Not a Hebrew word. What is she saying that there's no word for history? The data doesn't matter. There's no word for that. There's no word for all the data that make up the past. There's no word for that in Hebrew. Isn't that kind of crazy if you think about it? Why, she says, is there no word for history? Because that's not the point. Zikaron is the point. It's written in the present tense. We have to keep doing this in order to have it be part of our consciousness and in order to continue to enact redemption and liberation. Reuben. Uh, is this business of uh, God uh, standing guard or being vigilant, is, is that inferred or is that stated here somewhere? It's stated here. I Leil Shimurim Hu. It is a night of vigil. Ladonai. Right? Verse 42 on the top of 369. On top of 369. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Sure. I mean, here it says dedicated to Adonai. It's because Adonai had a night of watching over the Israelites, right, and affecting their salvation from this destroyer that is unleashed. Right? And has the destroyer, Psach, um, leap. Yeah. I was a page behind, so. There, there's no word for history, but a frequent word is mindset, story. And exactly. And Jews have always valued story. Lovely, Sarah. Sarah story. says, story. from Yiddish, if you want to say something, you say it's a mindset. A Bubba Misa. Now, that is derogatory, right? That's a, a Bubba Misa is like, or, or they just, they just say that. That's what your grandmother used to say. Forget it, right? But a Misa is, that is exactly it. We don't say, okay, historically speaking, right? We say there's a Misa. There's a story. That's how wisdom, that's how the past informs the future is because we tell a story. Well, history has a story in it. Mm-hmm. That is our people's I mean, the understanding. Well, there's the last a si- five letters of the word history. Ah, Reuben. <laughs> Lovely. Nice. But, of course, some of us don't love looking at the origins of that word, because what is it? His, His story. story. Oh, that's nice. I just want to say that. Um, <laughs> The seventh grade program last week, I don't know if you heard about it, but Brian had them, Brian Abner had them read the Hanukkah story, realize that there are actually a couple of Hanukkah stories, and then he had the kids each write their own stories, either about really sticking to your guns about something you feel strongly about, or compromising. And all of the kids wrote their own stories, and it was really beautiful, and they really got into it, so... We, we are actually bringing our kids up with this idea. At the KI Minion last week, we had a discussion about this whole story, which probably never happened in terms of what we consider history, and did it matter? 
<laughs> Does it matter? Right. There, there's very little if, or no archaeological evidence that there were any slaves. I'm not going to go into that. And Rabbi Wolpe, a number of years ago, yep. made the very controversial statement. And On the uh, front of the Jewish Journal. On the front of the Jewish Journal. And it's funny, everybody in the discussion felt it probably didn't happen, but that probably didn't matter. Because More attenser will disagree. <laughs> we now, fight about this and, every single and now, year. And, 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 and Dennis Prager disagrees, and we did some yes. text study on him as well. But, yeah, this is story. This is metaphor. This is, if you want, legend and myth, which does not mean false. <laughs> but it is not what we would consider like the history of the Second World War. But, Some of but, us. But to add to that, uh, yes, you that, yes. <laughs> we did talk about that for thousands of years, our people have been telling the story. Mm-hmm. And there are many truths. Mm-hmm. And at some point in time, this has become our story, mm-hmm. and it has become our history, and it has become our truth. Absolutely. So whether or not scientifically it actually happened, you know, whether you, you know, whether this text believe is written by God or written by by humankind, you know, many of us felt it doesn't, that doesn't matter. What matters is that it's our story and how can we inform how we live our lives and interact with other people based upon these stories. And Correct. So that, which is a very Jewish approach to the understanding of truth. Mm-hmm. Right? That's very Jewish. Many years ago, I facilitated a group of very elderly Women, women in their 90s, and the group was called Herstory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes, every good feminist has spent some time calling it Herstory in uh, objection to. Peace out. <laughs> we have, well, this is the women's. Uh, <laughs> women's argument, right? If you, look, if you look at what goes on today, most people would say that even our media, which is here today with cameras and everything, can't always tell us what's going on. Well, because so there's always there, a perspective. Whoever's well, so behind the camera, right, right so chooses what to shoot. Call the Homer. If you can't figure out what's going on today, what truth? How is much more today? Can we really know Nothing. about what actually happened in 2000 or 2003? So how? So going back to this thing about it's true because it's become our story. Mm-hmm. That is the that is the core of why we bother as Jews. It's a mice, and it doesn't mean it's fiction. It means it's true for all time. It means it didn't happen once upon a time. It happens every single day, say the rabbis. And one way of thinking about this, which I have recently, is when you hear, when I hear my own children talking to their children about something like this. Is this and where did they get it? But from us and from our grandparents and, and whatever, um, it does happen every day. And it is important to pass those along because they may not think so, but after given a few years down the line and they start telling the story, it does make an impression and it does have some importance. And so the, the power of that is that they then internalize redemption the obligations, I hope, is, that's what I hope we're passing on, right? The obligations that come out of understanding that we were gifted our freedom 
We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We're gifted that, right? So that that is what we hope comes from understanding our story is what that calls us into. And the tradition has a million amazing ways that this story is a, is a teaching for us all the time about liberation, about Pharaoh, about Mitzrayim. What is Mitzrayim? How do we affect our own liberation from oppression internally, externally, the world? Blah. We have amazing interpretations of this story. My deep concern is exactly what you said. My deep concern right now as a person living in the scientific West is that we have forgotten the importance of story. We turn to facts. We turn to show me the proof. And we have lost a deep connection to story, to the truth that has come through the ages and the experiences and the collective distilled wisdom of the generations on whose shoulders we stand. I am very concerned that our young people are everything now is so fast and fleeting for them where is their relationship their respect for their yearning for the wisdom that can only come from the past i worry for us that we don't have enough connection to myth right to the deep sacred truths dressed in all of the many wonderful garments that we have dressed them in as different cultures throughout time i worry for us for humankind that we are we're we're losing the 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 demand to know to learn to be taught to be told to live these stories that help define who we are as individuals and as a collective sarah i think the real big important key about these stories is that there is an element of belonging to the story and the story belongs to us it's our story mm-hmm. that's why we sit here because we're sitting with our stuff and it doesn't denigrate anybody else's it's just that this is a belonging thing. Right. And and that goes all the way back to this text, Sarah, that now that you say that. Because who's allowed to eat the Pesach offering? Not just allowed. Who's obligated to eat the Pesach offering? Anybody who lives among the Israelites and has become circumcised. Why? Because circumcision was the identifier that I sign on to this covenantal belonging business, and once I do that, it's my story. Doesn't matter how you get here. Doesn't matter how it happened. Doesn't matter a baby in a hospital in Philadelphia. Doesn't matter. Once we belong to this story, it's our story. I want to say I I want to go a bit further than that to me I look at it as a mythical story completely that we all need to go to the desert to do introspection as a person or as a group and it's not only a question of belonging I think it's a universal story that we need moment of total quietness (laughs) and 
that's how my interpretation is more than anything else. What Sarah, I think, is saying is completely what you're saying. We talk about needing time in the desert according to this story. Another culture is going to talk about a spirit journey. That's not what we do. This is our way of talking about a universal truth, 100%. Any real truth is a universal truth. What Sarah's saying is we belong to this way of talking about that universal truth. I meant also that at the same time the Pharaoh exists within me. Of course. Moses within me. Of course. And I have to contemplate what is it am I. Of course. That's what this is to me. Of course. Absolutely. 100%. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What did Rabbi Wolpe say? <laughs> what was the big yeah, the big The big coming out for him was saying that, that, that he... He's not interested in the historicity of this story. That he doesn't, like Bert said, there's no archaeological evidence for this. Not only that, come on. <laughs> and like, and that that's not the point. That the people want to harp on, did it really happen? And and get attached to it needed to have really happened for it to be compelling, for it to have truth. And what he was trying to get at was. That's not the truth that guides us as a people is that it happened in this place and time on this day in this year. The truth is what we've been talking about. And he got blasted, blasted for it. But it's, it's just like, I mean, when I was a little girl, and my, my mother would read Aesop's fables to me. I mean, obviously those things didn't happened, but there was a point in a, in a moral and a whatever to the story that we talked about. But we live in an age but, where that is not valued, and that's the challenge. People want to say, this has to be true historically to have any relevance to my life. And that, he was saying, and I think we all, you know, in our brand of Judaism anyway, that is exactly what we say, is that that's not the point. That's the wrong focus. The focus on did it actually, whatever that means, happen is is the wrong focus. The focus is on how do I leave Egypt today, this year? How do I model for my children, taking seriously that I know we were slaves in Egypt and we're gifted with the privilege of freedom, freedom to put certain things as our priorities to serve those values and those priorities. That's the point of the story. How do I deal with the Pharaoh here? The God that they have chosen. So this and it continues to be uh, a, a very energized conversation around many a table. Blanche? Our oldest grandchild, Eric, who's 30, is going to be married in April. Mazel tov. And he's marrying they're both Unitarian. They met through the youth group. She now works for the Unitarian group, developing programs for the youth. Uh, and she wants to know our history. And we talk about it. And we show her the albums. And uh, She's very much into family and finding out our roots, and it's good. Tell her she can be a Junitarian. <laughs> <laughs> she can be a Junitarian. 
there because right because what I think what what that particular you know it's not really a tradition but Unitarians they recognize that there is truth in all of these different traditions ways of talking about truth capital T and are open to exploring and honoring and respecting and learning from all of those um, as Linda said you know the the moral what the moral thing is we need to learn from them the difference goes back to what Sarah said why some people I know have left Unitarianism is because they don't belong to a story they witness everyone else's stories and they pick from them what they value and some people for some people that's not enough they're they want to belong to a story right not all stories equally, which is a very, for me, very Jewish way of, of looking at the world. David? Ah? Uh, Rabbi, is this the last sentence uh, where the, the rabbis wrote this part about uh, looking at this, observing this throughout the ages? Is this the first time that we've seen the rabbis talk to us? Say, hey, when you get together in 2016 and maybe sleeping, remember this story. Because I don't, I don't remember seeing that direct sort of comment ever until reading it right here. Uh, yeah, I think this is the first time we get it as an action that has something to do with with our cu- human, right, right. you know, relationship to the divine. This night. The, the only thing preceding it, I would say, is Shabbat. That is to be Lidorotam throughout the ages as a zikaron, as a remembrance of creation, right? We get that pretty early on in Genesis. And then later we see it, um, when we say Kiddush, Zecher Leyetziat Mitraim. Shabbat is also a remembrance of the going out of Egypt. So we have seen Shabbat before this as a commandment to keep through all time, but this is the first time it's really directly related to human experience. Would, would this then signify I think. that uh, others wrote this, that it's divinely inspired? And I, know, I think maybe the first point, myth is fine. You know, we don't have to have the actual facts. It's obvious that the sentence existed and had to be written by people far down the road when the event occurred that they were addressing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was going to say, the Ten Commandments were written for all people. This is the first, the laws of of Passover for an for an for an nation. You also mentioned just a couple of verses before that Pharaoh recognized the Israelites Mm -hmm. recognizing the people as a nation. So this sort of follows that you know, become a people. Right. And um, some scholars have pointed to the fact that it's always the anti-Semites who define who's a Jew. <laughs> the first time we're called B'nai Yisrael, it's by an anti-Semite. Right? And the law of return to this day in the land of Israel is based on who Hitler defined as a Jew. Right? That it, it's interesting, this relationship to our identity often being about how others perceive us, right, or define us. It's very, it's chief, very interesting. The chief rabbi of Israel doesn't follow that 
that set of rules. For example, there shall be one law for the citizen and for the strangers who dwell among you. I mean, all the people who are allowed to come to Israel are not necessarily viewed as Jews by the chief rabbinate of Israel. Right. So I think if, if this is supposed to be the word of God for the Orthodox, this is truly written by God, they're not listening. <laughs> I don't know. I'm talking to this, to the choir here. You're totally preaching to the ones who are saying. Um, I just wanted to kind of piggyback on what David said. Is that for me, I just want, I, this text is not divine because, you know, God was whispering in someone's ear and it got written down. Even though I do believe it's myth and somewhat fiction, I think that because so many people, or so many Jewish people over the years have gathered around it and shared it and passed it on, that's to me what makes it divine and sacred. And that's what I tell my kids. You know, it doesn't have to be that God wrote it down. It's just been... Like The Great Gatsby is a great work of fiction. It tells you a lot about America, but it's not the same as this story. Well, and for this some of us... the sacred and special. For some of us, the only way it remains divine is that we don't believe it was dictated yeah. into somebody's ear. Otherwise, some of it the wouldn't stuff, last. It wouldn't have enough resilience. And some of the stuff in here, through. I would not have much relationship with that, right. whatever that was that wrote this, right? right? So... I can continue to understand it as divine because we can interact with it in a way that brings holiness to our lives and not, as Rita was pointing out, you know, ways we can use it. Because certainly you can use a lot of these texts a different way if you want to see it as literal. Um, and, and it has been used that way and continues to be used that way um, in many places, not just by Jews, by the way. right? This text belongs to Christians as well. And there's lots of these, but... But in general, the Christians point to a lot of these texts to throughout history to kill Jews, like to what you know, to kill lots of people and to exclude lots of people. So, yes, 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 and yes. All right. So let's go on. Forty-three. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, "This is the law of the Passover offering: No foreigner shall eat of it, but any slave a man has brought may eat of it once he has been circumcised." No bound or hired laborer shall eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break a bone of it. The whole community of Israel shall offer it. If a stranger who dwells with you would offer the Passover to the Lord, all his males must be circumcised. Then he shall be admitted to offer it. He shall then be as a citizen of the country. But no uncircumcised person may eat of it. There shall be one law for the citizen and for the stranger who dwells among you. So well, I wanted to stop there to go to Rita's point and to, to leave it with um, this. Anyone who wants to say that choosing to be Jewish is a brand new idea and that it's illegitimate, I'm too very sorry. Please copy this page and hand it to them. Since the beginning of our understanding of becoming a people, we have understood that anyone who belongs to this people and signs on and lives as one of us opts in. And every single one of us opted in when we put the blood on the door. Everyone had to opt in. And it is an an important thing for us uh, to continue, I think, in our time especially, to not only 
to not only acknowledge, but to celebrate that we have always been a people who was happy and ready to have anyone who wanted to be a part of this craziness join us. Let us finally be done with any kind of hesitation about that. Can we just agree on that at a time where the Jewish birth rate is below zero? We are shrinking as a people officially. Let us celebrate and return to a really true understanding that if somebody wants to opt in, come Friday mornings, let's sit, let's learn, let's talk about what that means, but let's, let's be done, please, with making that in any way controversial or, right, or a source of embarrassment or hesitation. We need everybody who wants to be part of this to opt in. If you read this just a bit, would you look at that today and say you still need that? A male who wants to opt in but doesn't want to be circumcised, what then? It, it is a very controversial topic within the professional Jewish world right now. Um, what's, the, what's the status? Right now, most rabbis will insist on circumcision. To, to convert. To convert. To convert. Um, as for males, let's be very clear. Um, and for males who are... No, no, I know. Oh, my God. Um, for males who are already circumcised, there's still hatafat dam, a drawing of a drop of blood, so that there's a symbolic circumcision at conversion. Um, what was I going to say? Um, but but to your to your question... There's another place it's becoming controversial, and it isn't and it isn't conversion. Converts are usually fairly open, you know, to, to knowing that that might be a requirement. They have to wrestle with that. Where it's really becoming controversial are Jewish people who are choosing not to circumcise their sons. Yeah. It is becoming a huge source of tension and and ugliness in families. In couples, it, it's really interesting to. We are living at a very interesting time for that particular ritual. How does the Reconstructionist movement then view this issue with regards to conversion ceremony? Is it different than conservatives who would want it all? No, most Reconstructionist rabbis require circumcision. Um, that That's still normative, even you know within reconstructionism i don't think it is in reform reform does not as far as i know require circumcision really? yes oh. um i don't know i don't know what populate i don't know what percentage of the jewish population is reform um you know no. Is this the first time this has been no, 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 no. a thing? Is this the first time that they that it is stated that you have to be circumcised to be Jewish, or is it early? Okay, so there's no Jewish, right, right, right. Okay. But it's really important. I'm not just picking on it. Okay. That's a that's a big distinction, right? So there is no Jewish. There's Israelite. So you can be a stranger living among the Israelites and have the right to Shabbat and have the right to, you know, everything else an Israelite has. If you want to become Israelite and a full member of the covenant of Israel with yod heh it requires circumcision. We see this all the way back to Abraham, who is told he has to be circumcised, his household has to be circumcised, all the males in his house, and his son. 
So, so this, the tradition puts it all the way back at Avraham. Is this the first time we see it as a national, you know, requirement? I don't know. I would have to take out my, what we call a concordance and find the, the first references to Brit Nila after Avraham and see if it happens before this. I don't know. Off the top of my head. Concordance, is that Hebrew for Google? <laughs> <laughs> right? I wonder if there's a verb for to Google it in Hebrew. Le gagel. All right. So um, I want to give you an, uh, just a taste, because it's fun for me. I want to give you just a taste of the way the Hasidic tradition and our spiritual tradition continues to play with these metaphors and with parts of our text that are really difficult. Right? So go to your paper that I just handed you. This is from that book that I did something with you from last time, I think. The Aura, the Aura of Torah by Rabbi Larry Tabak in um, in London, and a Reform Rabbi in London, and so he's going to bring us this. Te- Can I see your English? I, I don't have an English. Thank you. Looking at this um, very, for us, distressing right line about the firstborn, and he brings the teaching from the tradition from Yisrael Friedman of Ruzhin, that quotes this commandment, Kidesh li bechor, sanctify to me, meaning God, the bechor, the firstborn, the first. Bechor, hu hamachshava harishona bekomo. What does this mean, the bechor? God forbid we should think it means just the firstborn, of a woman or a firstborn of an animal, chas v'shalem, or the fruits. What does Bechor really mean if this is Torah? It's true on all levels for all time. What does it mean? Bechor hu hamachshavah harishonah bekomo baboker. The Bechor means the first. The first thought we have when we wake up in the morning. If that's what Bechor means, then what does it mean to say, sanctify for me, sanctify to me, the first? What does it mean? L'kadesh oto l'adonai. L'kadesh ota l'adonai. That that first thought in the morning should be sanctified to God. What does that mean? Let our first thought in the morning be something like, grateful am I before you that I woke up. Because what is our tendency? What's our first thought usually? I don't know about y'all. I hate the morning. I hate it so badly that my first thought every morning is like... <laughs> have a lot to do today. I have a lot to do. Like the alarm clock already, really. Wait, so I knew I should have gone to sleep earlier. Wait. Hasidic tradition says not a good way to live. We are told by Torah how to live a life of liberation, a life of redemption. Your first thought is the Bechor of the day, the first of the day, and so, we are commanded to sanctify it. Is that before your first cup of coffee? I do not think Torah would ask that of anybody. When one separates the Bechor, 
the first, the firstborn, meaning the firstborn thought of the day, when one when one pulls that out of the klipa, the shell, remember, everything holy, everything is holy, right? This is, although a beautiful one, Elena, thank you very much. Although a beautiful one, it's a shell, right? There's a divine spark in here that is liberated when I say a bracha before I drink the coffee. When I drink coffee with an intention of gratitude for the abundance I have and the fact that caffeine exists. <laughs> I liberate the spark, right? And that changes me and changes the world that I interact with. This is just the klipa, the shell. When I pull my own bechor thought out of the shell of, you know, regularity and and sanctify it, immediately mikasher atzmo bechor de kedusha. It is immediately attached to holiness. So in other words, you don't even have to make it a grand, lofty, holy thought. If you can just refrain from oive, <laughs> right, immediately if I take that first thought, says the tradition, and mivatel, and and cancel it from the klipa, the shell, immediately, mikasher atzmo bechor to kedusha. I attach that thought to holiness. This is one small example of the way that our tradition takes a line of Torah that can be very troubling, right? Sanctify it to me the firstborn because, and, and completely, completely metaphorizes it out of an understanding that it's true. You gotta love Jews. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, it's true. This line is so true that we're going to go to a completely allegorical, metaphorical understanding. That's how true it is. So um, so may our first thoughts this Shabbat, this week, uh, be sanctified. Uh, may they uh, bring us to a place of holiness. I'm going to leave us with the words of Rabbi, uh, Rabbi the poet Marge Piercy, her poem called Matzah. Flat you are as a doormat and as homely. No crust, no glaze. You lack a cosmetic glow. You break with a snap. You are dry as a twig split from an oak in midwinter. You are bumpy as a mud basin in a drought. (laughs) Square as a slab of pavement, you have no inside to hide raisins or seeds. You are pale as the full moon, pocked with craters. What we see is what we get. Honest, plain, dry, shining with nostalgia, as if baked with light instead of heat. The bread of flight and haste. In the mouth, you promise home. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.